In the 14th century, Italian poet Dante Alighieri penned his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. The epic poem tells the story of a lost pilgrim who is guided through hell to meet his beloved in heaven. This fantastic journey is also a coded allegory. Hidden in the symbolism is a much deeper story with a map of history that connects Dante's life with our own. This is Dante's history. Inferno, Canto One. First, a little about the author. Dante Alighieri was born in Florence around 1265 into a relatively comfortable life. His family had noble origins and his father was a moneylender. Dante studied poetry, philosophy, and the writings of Christian monks. He was wed by an arranged marriage and had several children, though he also had a lifelong unrequited love for another woman. At the age of 25, he enlisted in the cavalry and fought in battle. He joined a guild and participated in the city council and became a rising star in city politics. In 1300, when Dante was 35 years old, he was appointed city prior, Florence's highest position. Two years later, he'd have all his assets seized and be permanently exiled from Florence. By the time he began working on the Divine Comedy, he was a beggar living in poverty. As for the poem, it consists of over 14,000 lines broken up into three main sections, Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. Each section, or cantica, is divided into 33 chapters called cantos. There are actually 100 cantos in total, but the first canto of Inferno is considered a prologue. Each canto also relates in some way to the corresponding canto from the other cantice, inviting the reader to also read the poem laterally. The lines of each canto are delivered in sets of three called tercets. The first and third line of each tercet rhyme, and the middle line introduces the rhyme of the next tercet. The scheme is known as terza rima, and it was invented by Dante. The poem wasn't written in Latin, as was typically the case for high art. Dante instead used what was considered the low language, the language of the people, a combination of southern and Tuscan dialects popular in Florence. It would eventually become the peninsula's official language, Italian. For this, Dante has been called the father of the Italian language. He was also writing what is known as the sweet new style, which makes heavy use of allegory and metaphor to convey an ultimately sweet message. He described the work as being polysemantic, meaning it could be interpreted literally, allegorically, morally, or analogically. As Dante explained in a letter regarding the poem, the subject of the whole work, taken from only a literal standpoint, is simply the status of the soul after death, taken simply. The movement of the whole work turns from it and around it. If the work is taken allegorically, however, the subject is man, either gaining or losing merit through the freedom of his will, subject to the justice of being rewarded or punished. Taken literally, the poem tells the tale of a fantastic trip through the realms of the Christian afterlife. But scholars and poetry lovers have spent centuries studying the symbolism, unearthing a rich tapestry of cultural references and a deeply personal account of the author's own path to enlightenment. The word divine was not a part of the original title. Initially, the work was known as simply the comedy. In the same letter, Dante explains the autobiographical nature of the original working title. 
The title of the book is Begins the Comedy of Dante Alighieri, Florentine in Birth, Not in Custom. In order to understand, you need to know that comedy comes from comos, village, and oda, which means song, whence comedy sort of means country song. Poems like this were meant to be spoken or sung by bards on street corners to passing commoners. The original copies were all handwritten. No original manuscripts remain, but quotes found in the margin of a document published in 1317 indicate that Inferno was circulating by then. Dante died suddenly in 1321 after returning from a diplomatic mission in Venice. He had just completed Paradise, and it may have been published posthumously. The poem was his masterpiece, and his final message to humanity. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark. Our story opens with a sleepy pilgrim named Dante, who, having strayed from the path, finds himself in the valley of a dark, savage forest. He can see the way out, a sunlit hill up ahead, which he tries to ascend. But on the way, he is stalked by a leopard, and soon a lion and a she-wolf block his path. Terrified, he retreats back into the woods, where he is met by a ghostly figure. It's the Roman poet Virgil, who lived under the reign of Emperor Augustus over a century earlier. Virgil warns Dante that the she-wolf will never let him pass, but a greyhound is coming to deal with it. He invites the pilgrim to instead follow him down another path, through hell. With the first line of the poem, midway upon the journey of our life, Dante is showing us that this story is not just about his life, but our life. There have been many commentaries on the significance of the Valley of the Dark Forest and the meaning of the Three Beasts. First, there is the obvious biblical references. The dark valley at the foot of the hill is likely similar to the Valley of the Shadow of Death, a sort of existential crisis in which one is close to death, with the hill or mountain representing a spiritual salvation. The three beasts also appear in the Bible. Jeremiah 5, verse 6. A lion out of the forest shall attack them. A wolf from the deserts shall ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out. Many biblical scholars interpret the beasts as references to types of sinful people who have become predators to watch out for. The ferocious and prideful lion, the ravenous and insatiable wolf, and the cunning and deceptive leopard. Virgil is said to represent human philosophy and conventional wisdom, that which guides the human mind from a state of chaos to one of bliss. His prophecy about the greyhound is a bit puzzling. Packs of greyhounds were often used to hunt wolves. Some believe this may be a reference to Jesus, who from Virgil's perspective had not been born yet. But Dante gives us a clue that there is more going on here than just biblical references. By making himself the main character, he acts as a cipher to unlock the personal confession hidden between the lines. He is having a midlife crisis. Since the age of 35 was considered the middle of life, 
He also places the start of the poem at around 1300, when he was 35. Early English commentaries interpret the stalking leopard to be a reference to Dante's affluent life in Florentine politics, while the she-wolf is likely a reference to Rome, whose mythical origins involved the milk of a she-wolf. The lion, which is a common symbol of the monarchy, is said to represent the ambitious kingdom of France. It was these three powerful forces that were responsible for Dante's exile. To understand Dante's dilemma, we have to set the stage. Unlike most of feudal Europe in the 13th century, Italy was still a loose confederacy of communes and republics. It was the cultural and economic crossroads between the Far East and the European West. Spices, silks, and other luxury goods were in high demand and heavily taxed. Everyone wanted a piece of this lucrative business of international trade. Merchants pooled their money together into merchant banks, using bills of exchange to represent large transactions the way we use checks today. The era also spawned the creation of what are known as the medieval super companies, family-owned multinational banking and trading corporations with a diversified network of investments in the production and distribution of everything from olive oil to cloth, even medicine. Competing maritime republics and merchant families were at constant war with each other and with the land-owning nobility. Some of the merchants were wealthy enough to dress and live like the nobles. The trend prompted the German nobility to issue sumptuary laws to maintain class order and keep scarce exotic items out of the hands of the lower classes. One law stated that Sabine fur, like leopard print, was to be reserved for noble women. Costume historians point to this era as the birth of fashion and using fancy dress as an indication of wealth and social status. Old family feuds were common, some with semi-mythical origins. One tale tells of how a drunken brawl between knights over the treatment of the help get someone stabbed. Another tells of how a refused arranged marriage leads to a brutal murder that was plotted in a church. The feuds were part of a larger political struggle that would last for centuries. With the fading Roman Empire now focused in Constantinople in the east, the church and German monarchy rose to power in the west. Those families loyal to the Pope became known as the Guelph Party and those loyal to the Roman Emperor were called the Ghibellines. The names derived from two royal houses of Germany with the same opposing alliances. The Guelph would ultimately be victorious, and in Florence, Dante, a Guelph by birth, would be part of the cavalry in the decisive Battle of Campaldino in 1289. But in the wake of this success, a new division arose in the Guelph party. Once again, it had its roots in a family feud. According to this tale, a feud began when a nephew threw a snowball at his uncle. By the end of the 13th century, the feud was a bloody citywide political conflict. The traditional Neri, or Black Guelphs, represented the interests of the aristocratic oligarchy. They wanted to keep power consolidated in the hands of a few. The more democratic White Guelphs, known as the Party of the Woods, represented the middle-class merchants and workers. By 1300, the fighting and brawling had gotten so bad 
that Pope Boniface VIII and his representative Charles of Valois, son of the King of France, were called to settle the dispute. But a compromise could not be met, and the Pope decided instead to banish the leaders of both factions for a cooling-off period. Dante, performing his duty as city prior, was forced to exile his good friend, fellow poet Guido Cavalcante. Guido would die of malaria while in exile, and the guilt would haunt Dante until his death. Though he was a supporter of the papacy, like the white Guelphs, Dante believed that papal powers should be limited to spiritual affairs. Pope Boniface VIII felt very differently. Boniface said, It was absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. In 1300, when Boniface requested a hundred men for his papal forces, Dante refused. Later that year, the poet was sent to Rome to seek audience with the Pope to protest new policies. While he waited for the Pope, Florence was overtaken by Charles of Valois, who had his own ambitions and was now aligned with the Neri. The Black Guelphs seized control of Florence and banished all the White Guelphs, who were now effectively considered Ghibellines. Though his wife was from a leading Black Guelph family, Dante's ideological opposition made him an enemy of the Neri, who were now also the main bankers of Pope Boniface VIII. Dante was accused of fraud and ordered to pay a large fine or face permanent exile. He rejected the charges, and seeing as how his assets were all seized, he chose exile. This is where our poem begins. What is called in medias res, in the middle of things. Dante uses the imagery of a shipwrecked survivor gazing out at the sea to illustrate how it feels to look back at the events that led him to his exile. It's fitting that after his run-in with the Three Beasts, Dante meets the poet Virgil, whose epic Aeneid, a tale about the founding of Rome, also started in the middle of things. Dante will draw upon Virgil's Aeneid just as Virgil did with Homer's Iliad. As for the greyhound that will come to chase the she-wolf back to hell, some commentaries point to the man from Verona who offered Dante refuge while he was exiled. He was the intended recipient of the letter I mentioned earlier, and among the first readers of the comedy. This wealthy patron would also go on to be regarded as the heroic leader of the Ghibellines. His name was Can Francesco de Scala, or more commonly known as Can Grande, which means big dog. In the next episode of Dante's History, the pilgrim prepares himself for his journey into the underworld by invoking the muses. And we'll learn a bit about the poet's own mysterious muse, Beatrice. Next time on Dante's History. <laughs>